Last week we we uh, finished Matthew chapter 18 verses 21 to 35 was a passage we looked at it has to do with forgiveness, forgiveness of personal offenses. As I said last week, forgiveness is a big issue. It's a complicated issue. Uh, it can be. Uh, it's very hard. In fact, I would say it's impossible to properly cover it in 30 minutes or 35 minutes. And so I wanted to return to it this morning. Had a couple of you uh, ask questions this week, and and uh, I want to be able to address those and just dive in a little bit more into this topic. It's so important for us. So let's let's pray, and then we'll we'll think together. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask that you would uh, bless your word for us, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, and hearts that believe. Um, if it's necessary to convict us, would you do that? Where we need comfort, where we need encouragement, uh, do that too. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we saw last week, uh, Jesus makes it clear that when a brother or sister sins against us and then repents, we are to forgive them. He does not leave an option for us to refuse to forgive them. In fact, refusing to re forgive a repentant brother or sister is a serious sin. Uh, he, as he explains in the parable in Matthew 18, <clears throat> those who refuse to forgive might very well be revealing that they're not at all saved themselves. I, I think that's because, in a, in a sense, the forgiveness that we extend to each other is a reflection of the forgiveness we have received. I, I suppose you could say that God has a well of forgiveness that never runs dry. And if you belong to him, he has given you a cistern. And that cistern will hold forgiveness. And out of that cistern, you can forgive others. If you don't have the ability to forgive others, and I'm not talking about the one or two people who have really dug deep that you have to wrestle with. I'm talking about in general. But if you don't have the ability to forgive others, then... Jesus says it doesn't sound like you've received forgiveness yourself. So there's, again, more about forgiveness than one sermon can say, so we're returning to that. Last week I gave you this definition. Forgiveness is canceling a moral debt and waiving the right of punishment towards someone who repents. God always sets the standard for his people. The purpose of God's forgiveness of sinners is to reconcile them. In fact, we know this. God never forgives anyone who is not then reconciled. God will never forgive someone and then send them to hell. If you have been forgiven by him, then you have been adopted by him. You have been converted. You have been made his. You have been regenerated, born again. God's forgiveness is never separated from salvation. God's forgiveness, that is, is never separated from a restoration of our relationship with him. It's always what it's there for and what it accomplishes. The purpose of our forgiveness is not to automatically reconcile. We know that. We know that forgiving somebody, even if they're repentant, does not automatically create peace between us. But what it does is clear the debris between us so that we can begin restoring the relationship. And we restore the relationship back to where it was, the kind of relationship that we had. 
If you forgive a casual acquaintance, that process of repentance and forgiveness will not make them a best friend. It might open the door for that. But we, we are brought back to where we were at the beginning. And that means that we can fine-tune our definition a little bit. Forgiveness means canceling a moral debt and waiving the right of punishment towards someone who repents so that reconciliation becomes possible. Sometimes reconciliation is not possible or wise. I was happened to think about a, a man that I had become acquainted with a little bit at the, the mission several months ago. I knew he was facing some legal issues, and I looked him up. And the legal issues he didn't want to share when he was there, the legal issues that he was facing were the sexual abuse of a 12-year-old girl. Now that he's pled no contest to that, um, he's accepted that that's there. If she's in Christ, should she forgive him if he repents? Yes. Should she trust him? No. No. Sometimes forgiveness is not possible. Sometimes it's not wise. We should forgive those who repent, but that doesn't mean we trust them. Trust is different. Forgiveness and trust are different. You are to forgive those who have wounded you if they repent because Jesus commands you to forgive them. It's, in a sense, it's what you owe him towards somebody else. But trust is relational, and trust takes both people to restore. Because of our sinfulness, because of our own weakness, and sometimes there just isn't time to restore that kind of relationship. And if it's involving a, a brother or sister in Christ, we can at least have the comfort and peace of knowing in eternity this will not stand between us. But for now, my heart won't let me go any further. The early church suffered enormous, enormously under the persecution from Saul the Pharisee. He was converted on the road to Damascus, and, and after a period of time, he went to Jerusalem, and most of the saints in Jerusalem just freaked. This is the one who was trying to kill us. It took someone like Barnabas, in a sense, to roll the dice and trust and listen and, and believe Paul's story of conversion. But I think that there were probably people in Jerusalem who never really trusted him. They were never quite sure. We can't blame them for that. I don't think Saul could blame them for that. I said last week that I was going to address some questions about forgiveness. Uh, the big question is about forgiveness and repentance. Does forgiveness require repentance? To, to, be, to be brief, and then we'll go into it, I believe that it does. I believe our forgiveness of somebody else requires repentance. Again, we have to take our lead from God in everything. And we know that there are things that God will not forgive. For instance, the Lord withholds forgiveness from those who refuse to forgive. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, for if you forgive others their debts, their sins, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. We know that God does not forgive those who whose hearts are hardened against him or those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And God does not forgive those who do not repent. Toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord pronounces blessings for Israel in the event of their faith and obedience, and then he pronounces curses against them in the event of their unbelief 
and disobedience. And he says this about the man who refuses to repent. Yahweh shall not be willing to pardon him. But rather the anger of Yahweh and his jealousy will burn against that man. And every curse which is written in this book will rest on him and Yahweh will blot out his name from under heaven. So those who are unrepentant are not forgiven by God. And they face eternal judgment. And then Jesus bases our forgiveness on repentance. In Luke chapter 17, he says, If your brother sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. Jesus does not say, if your brother sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, and he seems sincere, forgive him. He just says, forgive. And this is because God has the ability to look at your heart and my heart when we repent and know whether we are actually repenting, whether it's genuine. And he knows that, by the way, because he's the one who granted it to us in the first place. So when we show up to the Lord with genuine repentance, he says, I recognize that. I gave that to you. But I can't read your heart. You can't read my heart. And Jesus doesn't want us to try. He says, I want you to take your brother's word, your sister's word at face value. And if their repentance is not true, if it's not real, we don't know that, but he does. And they continue to bear that issue before him. I have this incredible privilege of... uh, Preaching the word of God. To preach means to declare unapologetically. I have the privilege of teaching, which means we, we take it from beginning to end. We read through it carefully according to the context and the language and the history and the setting. And I have the, the privilege, as you do, of reasoning from the word. Of taking the teachings and the principles and the implications of scripture and applying them in, in a sense, in a creative way, to the situations of our lives. So would you reason with me about this? What we see in Scripture is that forgiveness and repentance function together. Both are necessary. They are the restorative, healing steps that God has designed for two persons in conflict. Maybe three, maybe four, but two persons in conflict. When they are genuine, they are lovely and precious. as we reason, we see that biblical forgiveness doesn't exist in a vacuum. It doesn't exist for its own sake. We don't walk around saying to random strangers, I forgive you. It'd be bizarre. Forgiveness has a context. And forgiveness has a prerequisite. The context of forgiveness is relationship. And specifically a relationship that's been, that's been broken, that's been challenged. It, it may not be a compound fracture. It may not be an amputation. It might be. It might be a compound fracture. It might be a, a clean fracture. It might, it, it might be just a hairline fracture. But something has happened to that relationship. That's the context that forgiveness requires. The prerequisite for forgiveness is repentance. And that's because God has given both parties in a conflict steps to take to clear the debris 
to get it out of the way. Forgiveness can't be accomplished without that prerequisite of repentance. The guilty party needs to repent. They need to seek restoration. If that language is too fancy for you, they need to sincerely apologize for their actions. Then we are able to forgive. Those two have to work together. I was asked this week if if we forgive unbelievers like we forgive believers. Yes, of course. A broken relationship is a broken relationship. If an unbeliever has injured us, we can only forgive them and begin to restore the relationship if they'll acknowledge that. Now, they may not use the word, I repent. They might say, I'm sorry. I apologize. They may not even say, would you forgive me? But there's a sincere regret that you can hear. And you act on that. And and by the way, I'm not talking about the kind of I'm sorry that we give when we're moving through the kitchen and I bump into Linda when she's getting something and I say, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. We're not talking about that. We're talking about really significant issues. Forgiving an unbeliever who responds with, with repentance or an apology can be a beautiful demonstration of the grace that God shows repentant sinners. There are many, many people in our world who've never been forgiven by another person, much less God. And they live with the burden of their lives. By the same token, repenting of our sin against an unbeliever is something that, again, is going to be very unusual, and it it can demonstrate the humility that Christ has granted us. And the way that we are able to simply acknowledge what we've done, because God has called us to do that. I want to talk about what we do if somebody can't or won't repent, but before we do that, I'm, I'm just going to shoehorn a little bit about second-hand offenses, borrowed offenses. Uh, there, there are at least three reasons why somebody would not repent. I'm sure there are more. Uh, the first reason is that they're unwilling. The second reason is that they are unable to repent because we're no longer in contact with them or because perhaps they've died. The third reason that somebody won't repent is because they've not sinned against us. We're angry. We might be bitter. We might be resentful toward them, but they haven't sinned against us. What we've done is we've picked up what we call a secondhand offense, a borrowed offense. So like we used in the example last week from Philippians, we've got Yodia and Syntyche and in Philippi, and they've had some issue going on. And, and I imagined last week that Syntyche's best friend, Tertia, is now mad at Yodia because the two the ladies are on the outs with each other. What happens when Yodia and Syntyche resolve their issue? Tertia's left out in the cold. Nobody's going to go to her and say, by the way, I need to repent to you too, because they don't know. Secondhand offenses are something that we pick up on behalf of somebody else and that we don't share, but they become poisonous to us. Now, sometimes the actions of others should offend us. A question or two was asked this week about national leaders who are taking us in an ungodly direction. We should be offended by that. But we shouldn't hold a personal vindictiveness toward them. We can't do that. 
Most of the time, I think the truth is our own sins and prejudices get in the way. We hear that this person did something against that person, and we believe this person, and so now we start carrying a grudge against the second person. The scripture gives us some wisdom. There are two verses in Proverbs that I think apply. The simple believes everything, but the prudent one discerns his steps. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. We should not believe every accusation or the first person to speak up. We should be wise and exercise discernment. And listen, I've learned this through painful experience. I don't know how many times I've, I've believed the first report I heard, only to find out that it was wrong. Sometimes it's wrong because the person making the report was simply mistaken about the facts. Sometimes they're lying. I've experienced this in churches where, where one brother, one sister simply lies about another. Christians would never lie. Well, of course we do. We, we're capable of any sin. And the unfair thing that I did was to believe that first report as though it were true. Because I affirmed the person who's lying to me, which is not good for them. And then I've automatically built up this false impression of the person they're lying about. I was also asked if, if a second-hand accusation proves to be true, should it change our relationship with that person? And the answer is sometimes yes. Jesus, When Jesus talks about if your brother sins, go to him and show him his fault alone. If he doesn't listen to you, then go with one or two others and show him his fault. And if he doesn't listen, then tell it to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, what does he say? Shrug your shoulders, just wave it off because there's nothing you can do. He says, no, you change your attitude toward them. You change your view of them. And you begin to look at them as a Gentile and a tax collector. So sometimes a secondhand issue that doesn't directly impact us has to change the way we look at somebody. But again, that should never because, be because of personal, vindic personal vindictiveness, personal anger. It should be, be because of biblical truth. So if we can't forgive those who do not or cannot repent, what do we do? We leave room for the wrath of God. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21 says, Never paying back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you being at peace with all men, never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The key verse here is verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. Paul envisions here that someone has done us true harm. An enemy has harmed us. They brought suffering into our life through something that they've said or something that they've, that they've done to the point where we would be tempted to harm them back. And Paul says, if you're in Christ, you must not do that. But the scripture doesn't call us to blindly forgive either. The word forgive is not in here. 
Instead, what he says is, leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance rightfully belongs to God. He will judge, according to his wisdom, whether there's an issue to judge. And if there is, and they don't repent, his judgment will be exactly right. How do we leave room for the wrath of God? The answer is always in the text. He tells us that with five phrases, if you care about such things, they're Greek participles. The first one is never paying back evil for evil. God doesn't do that. Neither should we. God's judgment is not evil. It's righteous and it's good and it's holy. Second, respect what is good in the sight of all men. Justice and mercy are to temper one another. We are to be reasonable. We are to be winnable, but we're also to be just. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. See, we can sometimes forget our part in the conflict. Assume that we're the innocent victim in, in all of this, even though we might have contributed to the problem. Linda and I have done a lot of counseling with couples, marriage counseling. And it, it's not unusual for us to find within a, a certain couple that one is the reactor. They're the explosive one. They're the big one. They're the one who stands out like a sore thumb when they speak or when they act. And the other one often is an instigator. They're quiet. They're behind the scenes. But they're the one lighting the match to the fuse. If the reactor is baking soda, the instigator is vinegar. And often the reactor is easy to deal with because they see their actions and once they acknowledge their actions, once they repent, they, they stop reacting. And what we've seen at times is the instigator then gets angry because they, they can't manipulate the other one anymore. Sometimes you have to get the big sin out of the way for the little sin to be visible. Never take your own revenge, he says. And I love this. Never take your own revenge. See, we are not orphans. We're not isolated wanderers. We have a father who loves us. We have a shepherd who leads us and defends us. We have a spirit who dwells within us and who guides us. We are not defenseless. We don't need to take our own revenge. Our father will defend us. Our shepherd will defend us. If you believe that God knows all things and possesses all wisdom and that he is sovereign all over everything, you can leave all judgment in his hands when you don't know what to do. And just say, I don't know what to do. I leave this to you. He will either look at that person and see them through the cross of his son and say, their sin against you has been paid for by my son on his cross. Or he will look at that person and know that they will bear their sin for all eternity. And you don't have to enter into the process of judgment. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That is, treat your enemy with compassion. The result is this picture of burning coals. Most commentators see the burning coals as a, a picture of embarrassment or shame. Now, when somebody has injured us, when they have mistreated us, when they have foully used us, and we respond to them with kindness and grace and mercy and regard, there's at least the opportunity for them to become ashamed of their behavior. 
And in doing this, we demonstrate that we're not like them, but that we're growing into the image of Christ. There's a situation in the Old Testament in the, the book of 2 Kings when the king of Aram sent his army to attack Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah, I think. The prophet Elisha uh, prayed to Yahweh that he would blind them. And Yahweh blinded them. And then Elisha goes up and goes, hey guys, over here, over here, listen up. Follow me, I'll lead you back. And he leads them out of the area. And then he prays that God would restore their sight, and God restores their sight. And then King Jehoram says to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? And Elisha says, No, you shall not strike them down. What's wrong with you? Would you strike down those that you have taken captive with with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them so that they may eat and drink and walk back to their master. What's going on? The enemies of God have been defeated. And we are not to treat them cruelly. Now, the enemies of God today have been defeated. They don't believe that. They don't know that. They would argue against it. But they've been defeated. They cannot win. They're under his judgment, and we should pity them because of that. They can't escape his judgment no matter how hard they try. They can only be saved from it through Christ. They might use us. They might harm us. They, they might abuse us. They might even kill us, but they've been defeated. And we're not to kick them when they're down. I was asked to answer the question of whether forgiveness and leaving room for the wrath of God are ultimately the same thing. If we use a biblical definition of forgiveness, not just what forgiveness is, uh, canceling someone's moral debt and waiving the right to punish them when they repent, but also consider what forgiveness is for to make it possible to reconcile a relationship, then no, they're not the same. We don't leave somebody to the wrath of God Because in doing that, we're going to regain a relationship with them. We leave them to the wrath of God so that we can take our own sense of judgment and clear it out of our hearts rather than giving in to some kind of a sinful attitude. The world promotes forgiveness as a way to get rid of emotions that are negative. If you're angry, if you're bitter, if you're resentful towards someone, if you're holding a grudge, you just need to forgive them. And for the world, that means stop thinking about it, let it go. Shrug your shoulders and walk away. And I think we can say, I don't think it's unfair. I think we can say that worldly forgiveness is incredibly selfish. Worldly forgiveness is only about you and your bad feelings about this situation. That's all it's about. Biblical forgiveness is as much for the guilty person as for the victim. In fact, it's more for the guilty person. Can, can you, any one of you, and I, and I invite you, anybody to stand up and shout it out. Can you tell me how God benefited from forgiving your sins? How did you benefit from forgiveness? See, forgiveness is not about God feeling better about himself. It's about his love being expressed so that those who are his enemies could be converted into his children and be restored to him in relationship. 
There needs to be an element of our forgiveness that is not simply about us, but about blessing the other person with, with freedom. The Bible gives us a, really a wonderful example of what it means to leave room for the wrath of God. We see it in the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph is a, is a long story. Joseph's story runs from Genesis 37 to the end of the chapter, kind of on and off. There are a couple of breaks from it as time passes. So summarizing his story is a challenge. I've got a 30-second summary. You can time me if you want. Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob. His older brothers hated him. When he was 17, they sold him to slavers who sold him to an Egyptian official. By God's mercy and providence, Joseph gained the respect of Pharaoh and became the second highest official in Egypt around the age of 30. He used his position to save his family when a famine struck Israel and they came looking for help. His father Jacob died in Egypt without knowing what his brothers had done. That's the summary up to the passage I'm going to read. Jacob has died. They've taken his remains to Canaan and they have buried him there. Then Joseph's father saw, or brothers saw that their father was dead and they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and returns back to us all the evil which we dealt to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father commanded before he died, saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they dealt evil against you. That's a lie. There is not a hint in the book of Genesis that Jacob ever knew what happened. Not a hint. This is a lie. When they had sold Joseph into slavery, they had stripped him of his robe. They took his robe, they slaughtered an animal, they covered it in blood, the, the, the robe, and they sent it back to Jacob. They just sent it back to Jacob. We just found this. We don't know what happened. Jacob holds up that bloody robe and he says, my son has been killed and devoured by an animal. And they let him believe it. When they come back and say, this guy we've been talking to in Egypt, that's Joseph. They don't say, "And there's more we should tell you. He doesn't believe it till he sees him. He never knew. This is a lie. So now, please forgive the transgression of the slaves of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. See, this is the first time, even in this way that I think is insincere and shallow, this is the first time in, in 30 or 23 or 25 years that Joseph has heard his brothers acknowledge what they did. first time and he weeps then his brothers came and fell down before him and said behold we are your slaves again i don't think there's much sincere about this they're afraid of being put to death and they're just trying to create a situation where joseph won't do that listen to what he says to them but joseph said to them do not be afraid for am i in god's place as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to do what has happened on this day, to keep many people alive. So now, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke to their heart. Joseph doesn't say, it's okay, don't worry about it. God's not mad at you either. He leaves that out. You're okay with me. You don't need to be afraid of me. Maybe you need to be afraid of God. 
Maybe you need to do business with him. But you don't have to fear anything from me. See, what he said to them at the end of Genesis is the result of decades of faith and submission to the purposes of God. There's never a moment in Joseph's story where we see him seething with anger and resentment toward his brothers, ever. He began trusting the providence and the will and the character of God from the moment they threw him into the pit. We shouldn't pretend it was easy. We shouldn't pretend it was effortless. But it didn't take him years to arrive at this. They sold him into Potiphar's house. The slavers did. God immediately began making him successful in Potiphar's house. The Lord was with him because Joseph's heart was with the Lord the whole time. He was 17 when they sold him as a slave. He's over 40 before he sees them again. And now I don't know how many years has gone by between that first meeting with them and this time when Jacob has died. I don't know if it's a year, five years, or ten years. I don't know. But decades have passed. But in this moment, we see him living out Romans 12, 17 to 21. He refuses to pay back evil for their evil. He does what is respectable and admirable in the sight of all men, us included. We look at the story of Joseph and think, I don't think I could ever do that. He, he sought to be at peace with them. He refused to take revenge on them, and he treated them with compassion. As we bring this home, Pastor Justin is going to come and lead us in the Lord's table, but let me just give you this. The forgiveness that we show others is rooted in the forgiveness we have received from our Savior. We have been forgiven infinitely more than we will ever have to forgive. God has not repaid you evil for your evil. God has treated you in a way that is gracious and praiseworthy and admirable. God has created peace between you and himself through the blood of his Son. God has refused to take rightful revenge on you. And he has treated you with loving kindness, tenderness, and compassion. And that becomes the basis for our forgiveness of others. Father, we thank you for your word, and I ask, Lord, that you would allow it to settle, penetrate our hearts, that we would grow and that we would know you better and serve you better every day. We thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.